The Teamwork Arts Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is where uh, we try and go behind the thoughts that animate the actions of those uh, who make the arts possible. And today, uh, uh, really, really happy to have uh, Anchan Malhotra with us, um, oral historian. It uh, is just such a lovely appellation, is it not? I mean, uh, uh, the oral culture, and then you write about it. And in this uh, increasingly virtual world, um, the, the allure, the absolute romance of uh, of the touch and feel of things. The Remnants of a Separation um, yeah, happens to be uh, uh, one of those books that uh, leave an impression. And uh, you know, there are times when, Anchal, um, you read something and then uh, at a certain time, things come back to you. Those are, uh, to me, that's what the book has been. Welcome to uh, Timo Gats Podcast. Thank you very much for spending the time. It's such a pleasure to be here in conversation with you again, Sarthak. Yes. Over the years, we've spoken about this book and other things so often Absolutely. and so in detail and I think you are one of those people who does return to the concept a lot of things and touch and feel. Yes, yeah, and I think it's important, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, as we, we've had this conversation earlier as well about the fact that uh, intimacy uh, has a very physical aspect to it as well and um, uh, and you've treated objects as as your muse, so to speak. You've you've actually gone literally picked up objects as your muse for the uh, for the book. So, uh, what made you do that? How how did that uh, how did that uh, romance, if I may call it, start? I think that the first thing is that I'm, and I don't know how many people actually know this, that I'm not trained as a historian. I'm trained as a fine artist. Oh. I'm a metal engraver by education. Uh, I learned lithography, engraving, screen printing, paper making. So when you are trained as an artist, you immediately have respect for the tactile, which means that you are used to holding things that have texture or history or any kind of uh, solace in objects comes from that understanding. Uh, when we interact with objects of age, it is very natural to feel like we are transported to another time or to a person who may originally have owned the object or given it to us. I think that linking objects with a specific event from history was just a natural, like it just clicked naturally for me when I encountered objects that had been carried across the border during partition, such a momentous time. Absolutely. And their owners held them and felt them and caressed them. And it seemed like it was inspiring them to return, not just into the past, but also across this very, um, this border that we can't cross now, right? A kind of untraversable border. They were traversing it in memory and, and in conversation. And there was something so, I had never witnessed something like that before. Sure. So. Sure. Yeah. The, the emotion uh, that an object evokes and especially uh, of, as you said, uh, such a momentous event as the partition. Um, I've also, uh, uh, you know, uh, read and heard a lot of authors say that uh, uh, objectivity, maintaining objectivity from, uh, uh, maintaining a distance from the, from the subject is something uh, that helps them write. But um, do you believe in that? And if you do, uh, was it difficult to, uh, to distance yourself from the emotion? Because I'm sure the emotion must have been really strong, no? Yes. Yes, um, it, it absolutely depends on what part of the book process or the process of the project I'm at. When you are sitting with someone and interviewing them, 
what you are concerned with is trying to get as much conversation out as possible, trying to understand as much of their story as possible. When I was sitting, I wasn't necessarily thinking about... Um, <clears throat> sorry. This is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> there's water if you... Yes, there's like, also yes. coffee. <laughs> hmm. So when I was sitting with people, I wasn't always... Um, so into their story as I was trying to get them to talk, which means that there was a certain amount of objectivity happening there. Sure. I wasn't placing myself in the conversation. I wasn't getting trapped into the narrative. Mm. I was trying to understand it from a distance. Right. However, when you listen to those recordings later, when it's just you and a voice, <clears throat> I think that it affects you in a different way. And you start to actually focus on what the words they are saying mean. For instance, when someone is talking about their family being murdered in the riots during partition, you start to understand how that may feel and you start to become very, um, you start to kind of get embroidered into the conversation. You, you know, you, yeah. it's hard to keep distance. Sure. And the other thing is that the method of storytelling that I employ is not, uh, is not writing uh, history. It is the narration of an oral history done through conversational means. By putting myself in the narrative, I'm already becoming involved in their story. Right. So I think that the subjectivity is definitely there at um, the level of transcribing, translating. I become embedded into the story, but I do always have to remind myself that it's not my story. I know a lot of people had, uh, who do work like this find it very hard to make that differentiation no. that, because you're so embedded in the narrative. But this is not my story. It's just someone else's story that I need to tell with respect and dignity to them. Sure, sure. Uh, the, list, uh, the, the reader, though, has the luxury of actually being completely subjective in reading it. Right. And uh, you seem to have uh, had quite a reaction to the book. I mean, uh, you know, people uh, who came out with their own stories because uh, it was a bit of a trigger for them. So um, was that a little overwhelming uh, considering the kind of emotions that it evoked? It remains overwhelming. Like, let's just put this into perspective. I was 23 years old when I started just on an off chance that uh, I was curious about objects that were carried across. So I started this project, which eventually became my thesis. And, um, you know, that was 2013, and which means like 60-something years had passed since partition. Were people actually going to care about partition still? Mm. I was so concerned, and I was so young. And I don't think I expected there to be such a snowball effect of memory. Like, it was almost as if no one had asked people, survivors of partition. So when the book finally came out, my biggest concern was, well, is anyone going to pick it up? Because it's, you know... People keep saying that partition is in the past and partition is done and dusted with, but that's obviously not the case. And it cannot be the case because we haven't formed an organic repository of its memory yet. Mm. You know, we always think of, um, we talk about truth and reconciliation, always. Sure. There has been no reconciliation in the, the area of the subcontinent because there is no truth about what happened at the time. Only when you have the versions of truth, the truth of Pakistan, the truth of India, the truth of Bangladesh, much no. later on, will you have some sort of reconciliation. No one has asked people, no one has, I mean, maybe, you know, there is the 1947 partition archive, there is the partition museum, there are archives, but I feel like 
what I was doing was not only talking about memory, but trying to build an ethnographic landscape of the time, asking them about their objects, which immediately meant asking them about their daily lives. You know, sure. uh, if someone carried a pen or someone carried a shawl, it would immediately tell you about what they wore or what they studied at school. Uh, there was also someone who carried an alligator. <laughs> you remember that story? It was a crocodile. It was a crocodile, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 15 and a half feet. 15 and a half feet. Yeah. You have to tell us that story one more. It's just beautiful, isn't it? So people carried lots of, you know, like what's precious to you? If I ask you, what will you carry if your house is burning? Yeah, that's a difficult question, right. but yeah. I so mean, this yeah. gentleman obviously thought that this crocodile carcass was very important. Okay. Um, but there is a really amazing story behind this. On the banks of River Bias, there was this man-eating crocodile. And he only used to eat dhobis. Dhobis? Washermen. Okay. Because those were the only people who came to the river sure. to wash their clothes. Sure. So he had eaten like three or four of them. And then this, <laughs> and then this gentleman says that I am going to hunt this crocodile down. So he stalks the crocodile, it takes a long time. He maps its movements and then he kills it. Right. After two failed attempts, I think he kills it. And he carries it to the village and the families of the dhobis can now be avenged because everyone is like touching the dead crocodile to make sure that it's died. <laughs> and you know, it's like, it's put on display and right. everything. And then the crocodile is naturally gutted, skinned, taxidermized, and its head is put on the wall as a souvenir and its skin is rolled up. So when partition happens and this gentleman has to migrate from India to Pakistan, he naturally carries the crocodile. Of course. And it's still on display in his home in Lahore. Now, he's no more, but his subsequent generations were very afraid of that crocodile and wow. as children. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, there was the touching story of the of the poetess and the poet. And yes. the, that, 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 again, remains uh, one of those stories that, uh, that I keep coming back to every time there's... But you know, this is the thing, like, uh, partition is such a tangential topic, like it takes you to so many places. Yes. And I think that the misconception that people have is that partition happened over the month of August only. And then it kind of subsided. But in fact, partition is a process which started, some would say, as early as 1930 with, you know, the declaration of the word Pakistan. And I would say it still hasn't normalized because we are still feeling the effects of that division. In fact, that's very interesting, Anjal, because uh, partition is not just um, not just an event; it's also increasingly becoming a bit of a tool. Yes. Uh, and it's being uh, it's being used to uh, uh, you know whip up passions. It's being used it's to being wielded. It's being wielded. Yes. Yeah. And uh, uh, you, you ever um, feel the temptation to jump into that debate? Because uh, as I said, you know, uh, in brief, if I remember the story correctly, was. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, the, the poet in the poetess story was uh, was a soldier who who used to uh, write in a newspaper and that's that newspaper right. was uh, read by a lady who would write back and that's yes. how their romance cross-border romance happened and There's, not just cross-border he was a soldier in Baghdad he wrote from there he wrote from Baghdad yeah. Yeah. so it yes. was literally across so yes across the black waters so there's uh, you know as is the case with anything there's always uh, uh, two sides to a coin and you seem to have uh, you seem to have uh, mined both the sides quite well and seem to have come up with uh, a lot of stories that also give us hope uh, at a time when uh, when wounds are being uh, lacerated yet again do you feel the temptation to uh, to jump into the debate a little to uh, sort of bring out the brighter side maybe 
Almost never. Um, <laughs> oh, I say that because, um, you know, there is a... And I always also hate to talk about this, but it's not something I can ignore forever. Mm. There is also a trolling culture now, mm. particularly with people or scholars like me who do cross-border work with Pakistan. Uh, one of the most important parts of Remnants is the fact that it has first-hand stories from Pakistan, which is uh, something that not a lot of books on partition can do, mostly because you know Pakistanis can't come to India or Indians can't go to Pakistan as easily. No. But going to Pakistan multiple times, doing research there, means that you make meaningful connections with people over there. And you learn to unlearn a lot of the... Um, just, Prejudices? Not yeah. just prejudice, but a lot of the news that media puts out mm. about the other so. side. You know, you unlearn because you speak to people. And you, you make connections. And then you relearn things. Mm. There will always be prejudice. We are all born with prejudice. We can't help that. Sure. We can help unlearning it, though. Uh, so I'm always, yes, of course, one is tempted. But I'm always afraid of the backlash that will come. Uh, mm. The trolling culture is real. The mm. number of times that um, I have been, uh, I don't know, the go back to Pakistan or, you know, sure. this, this happens a lot. Sure. And this happens online. And it happens behind usernames and it's veiled because it's it's a tweet sure. but um, it takes away from the larger subject that you are trying to show people which is the shared history i feel like it's really easy to say that you know we are separate now and so we should have separate lives india and pakistan but we did come very much from a shared history and a shared land and i feel like people do need to celebrate that as well because governments have partitioned far easier than people sure. and if there is any hope for peace then it will be through common people now this is also a very naive thought because obviously <laughs> i don't understand how how complicated governmental processes are and and we are you know always at brink of war and but you know when you speak to someone from the other side as i did for remnants it doesn't feel any different <laughs> and i think that when I was writing, I was trying to make ordinary people understand that. That before you say, because you are a Muslim, you are a Pakistani, or because you write on partition, go back to Pakistan, you think about what that means. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, it's, it's just ordinary stories of people that are bringing about extraordinary reactions in people. Sure. But um, has this also made you second guess uh, uh, your work? Uh, that you that you do uh, across the border etc has, has no. that uh, made you think twice about that or maybe veil it a little or change it in any way no uh, not at all um, and I can't because I write on partition writing mm. about only India when it comes to partition would mean like writing about only the left half of your body mm. Mm. and of assuming course. that it will still survive there's, there's also this whole thing Anjal of uh, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Comparison, no, but, no, but but you know, like it's yeah, uh, with uh, with the kind of uh, cleaving that that's happening. Cleaving, in society. exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you uh, you you know uh, the thing about uh, uh, about writing is that uh, it does evoke um, emotion. I mean, yeah. when you when you're reading it, uh, obviously. But um, 
in today's day and age increasingly uh, one tends to see that uh, there are lots of uh, uh, there are lots of meanings that are uh, uh, that are attached to things that are said apart from the real meaning of what is supposed to be said and uh, uh, there's lots of ad agendas that have begun to be served with saying things about things um, uh, that are maybe polar opposites you know and your um, your work is rife for for that kind of misinterpretation uh, have you had to suffer that from time to time <laughs> um but nothing serious i think you know it's funny the other thing is that um i don't know if this is a blessing or not in the context of the question that you're asking but oral history is not given as much importance as archival history it is no. in fact um it's like soft history, you know, you're writing the <laughs> memories of people, you're writing about people's stories. Pop like history, yeah. I mean, no, it's actually called history from beneath. Really? As if like there is a larger history looking at it from above. And I always find it really strange that like while people are writing this large age history, yeah. I'm writing this small age history, <laughs> which I don't mind so much, but maybe because of the fact that it's not uh, taken as seriously by I don't know. Maybe that's why it hasn't gotten. It's very interesting because uh, we we are a, we are a country of an overwhelmingly over, oral tradition, aren't we? Yeah, well, that's the irony, isn't it? Uh, that's why you know you started the podcast by calling me an oral historian, and I'm very particular about that because I do make that differentiation. But it's also important to understand that archival history can't exist without the stories of people who make that history and live that history. But it's always a kind of, um, you look down on it. There's also, uh, 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 since we're talking about uh, uh, capital letter history and small the hierarchies letter history, of history yes. <laughs> there's, uh, there's also a bit of a, a gender issue there, isn't it? I mean, uh, have you had to, oh, she's too young, oh, it's a lady. Have you had to face uh, those in the, in the realm of, uh, of academia, so to speak? Yes. <laughs> yes, but, but I, I um, straddle the line between popular history and academia. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm never actually fully accepted into the <laughs> accepted into <laughs> academia, though it's interesting because the, the, my work is read uh, by students in universities and academic circles. At the same time, I think that I have felt uh, this gender and age issue a lot in in the subcontinent yes mm -hmm. yes i was too young yes i was a girl yes um yes all of those things all, and i you know it, you're treated differently than your peers who are your age writing similar things sure and it's difficult to ignore that sometimes did it become a hurdle ever no no, no because i i mean i i feel like if you if you don't look at me and you don't know who i am and you just read what i write or listen to what i say then it doesn't matter sure. because it is isn't it about the content that you are putting out isn't it about the, the words that you are writing or the information you are transmitting to the world sure. it doesn't i don't know and sometimes the thing is i also feel like i was able to record a lot of those things because of my age because i was sitting with a generation that perceived me as a grandchild they opened up to me and of course being a woman does help you are accepted into sure. people's lives a lot more easily. I know that I felt it. Sure. But I don't think that that should be the reason why your work isn't taken seriously in the circles that it 
it should be and it's a serious amount of work i mean uh, the but you <laughs> overcompensate then right that's why it feels so serious like i overcompensated a lot for my age mm-hmm. i overcompensated a lot for my gender which seems stupid when i say it now sure. but it translated in a very solid work ethic for me right. it meant that people like male writers my age uh, i mean i don't know i'm sure we put in same amount of work but i know that i i worked a lot harder than i would have had i been a, a man so take us through a typical uh, uh, proce- the typical process of of uh, uh, raw material to finished material i mean how does that happen i i I've, i've always been fascinated with um, with the fact that you actually go interview people sit with them be in those surroundings touch feel those objects and then you come back and then you have to literally objectively tell the story without you being a part of it you know to me it's fascinating so uh, how, how's that done well uh, it's a lot less exciting than you make it sound i think i have a habit <laughs> a lot of making it sound exciting so you yes you do you do i think the joy is really finding people mm. that's really the joy because you make a lot of connections sure. um almost every single person that i have spoken to has been referred to me by someone else that i've either interviewed or no which means you're already creating a web of people like this very big loosely knit family almost um someone tells you about someone else who has something and then you know you kind of make it as you go along so you do go to people's houses across the world if you can uh, across the nation if you can and you record i I only do audio recordings mostly because I'm not very good with technology and I also find that video sometimes uh, makes people very conscious. Sure. I know that it makes me really conscious. With older people, uh it's even more so. So I always just record with my phone and I keep the phone to the side and ultimately people forget that it's there. So they are open with me. I also don't have a questionnaire when I go. So it's just a conversation like you and I are having now because I don't want to limit myself or someone else to the same set of questions as everyone else because then like it's like a script almost right so i have the freedom to ask really bizarre things sometimes like how did you make your hair as a child or what did you wear or did you have a favorite toy uh but this depends on what we are talking about we could also talk about the grass that grew in the garden i do that as well right uh and i think that i think about the interview a lot because there is you have the questions and someone else has the answers there is already a status quo that has been established at the beginning but if you are asking someone to narrate something of great depth and intimacy to them that they may have never even said before to you then you have to meet them somewhere and do similar things and this is what i call the plateau method for me okay. which means that if someone is meeting you here then you have to equally rise to the occasion which means that they can ask you questions okay. whatever they want so, right and then it's truly a conversation right um so we talk about all kinds of things from like their family to partition yes and almost always this is aided by the object the object is in front of us the object can be as diverse as a shawl to a piece of jewelry to a pile of books to that crocodile head You know, You've seen that. I've touched it. Oh. Oh my god, I touched the teeth also. I had to <laughs> climb on a chair. Wow. Yes. That's phenomenal. Yes, it's like shrunk now. It's like a ghadial almost. Sure. <laughs> But uh so so we talk about things and I'm recording and then 
I take a lot of photographs because I'm a very visual person and I think that if you want to bring a reader into the landscape, you have to build that landscape, whether that landscape is from 47 or even the room you're sitting in. So I take a lot of photographs. Um, then I go home and now this is the worst part of the process. You have to transcribe everything. Yeah. Transcribe, translate transliterate, then you have to thread things together into a cohesive narrative, which means you need to do secondary research. So if someone has told you, for instance, that um, when they were three years old, they saw Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru ride through an Arkali Bazaar in Lahore on a white horse where people were throwing rose petals on him. This happened, by the way. <laughs> you may have to dig into some really bizarre archives to find out whether that happened. And you may not always find things. Like sometimes there may be really weird things like 3 a.m. in the morning, a train came and it was all dead bodies. You're not going to find anything like that because in those days there were so many trains like that. But this Pandit Nehru thing is really... Wow. Yeah, so it the, happened. It happened. And it did happen. It, it was, happened. Oh, wow. Yes, it happened in 1929 when he was uh, leading a procession to the river Ravi to declare Poon Swaraj. Ah, okay. Right. Wow. So this happened. Anyway, this is just an example. Sidelights, yeah, of course. Fantastic. Uh, and he also stopped at the shoe company, which had a shoe, shoe store in Anarkali, which had a very big, like a large, comically large shoe displayed at the front and the owner of that shop garlanded him with a garland of notes. Ah, money. yes, of course. <laughs> That's so, a bit of a tradition, of isn't it? <laughs> side, side tidbits. Um, anyway, so like you put your secondary research together and then you actually, in my case, I was writing chapters about people. And I'm very good at following our conversation. It's very rare that I will put what was said at the end at the very beginning. So I already kind of have a format laid out for me and I feel like it makes it natural as well because that's how our conversation happened. Sure. Uh, and then uh, you just wait for a publisher to, to, to pick you. Um, yeah, then that's, that's that. Uh, you don't seem to... Uh uh, you don't seem to mind too much the loneliness uh, of the profession, uh, do you? I mean, uh, it's supposed to be a lonely job. Everyone seems to be uh, talking uh, quite a bit about it. But you, you don't seem to mind it, do you? I have hundreds of voices keeping me company. Hmm. But I find it really difficult to forget the voices. You're constantly listening. You're constantly listening to the interview. I remember the way people said things when they said them. But... Uh, I mean, there are different kinds of loneliness also. Sure. The craft of writing, uh, the actual process is a solitary process and it has to be. Because um, you're not just uh, threading what other people are saying, you're also exhuming parts of yourself. Sure. You know, and it's, you're weaving those two things together. And I can never write in public spaces because I do this thing where I read everything out loud. Every time I write something, I read it out loud. I do the voice that the person may have. I do the accent that if I can do it. Because I, I, sure. I just find that if it sounds natural, sure. then it will read naturally to the reader. And this is very helpful for me. So you're never going to like randomly see me sitting in a cafe and like writing my first draft. It's so, never going to happen. Yeah, that'd be a little weird, no? sitting there. No, but lots of people can do it with ease. And I'm so jealous of those people. I'm envious. Like, you can just sit back and you can go to a cafe and you can, you know, 
go to I don't know in your in your manuscript you can go to Bulgaria and like you know write a <laughs> thing. I'm really it, I'm envious. Sure. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, uh, these uh, thank yous that you read in a lot of books about uh, other people having read through the draft etc mm-hmm. are you a big fan of uh, of that uh, getting I, your drafts read by uh, by other people so that uh, you get a bit of a perspective my mother only only yeah okay like for remnants i think it was just my mother and she would read she would give me notes and she's you know she's pretty spot on with things because she's she's not looking at it from a writer's perspective she's looking at it from a reader's perspective so um she's pretty open in telling me when it's garbage as well <laughs> moving swiftly on to the no no she'd be happy to hear that it's, yeah, it's yeah. fine <laughs> it's actually uh, quite humbling to uh, have uh, honest opinion being thrown from your mother from from the mother as well sure yeah <laughs> sure yeah yeah i can sense a little bit of emotion there no but, but i i mean i i do really appreciate her feedback but that being said i feel like uh, i would be really nervous to get other writers feedback mm. which is why i can never imagine myself like in a in a ma of creative writing or something now after being a published writer right you know i i am also really like i'm in awe of writers who go on to do like creative writing courses and sit in you know feedback groups it's such an incredible process but i would be terrified sure i i don't think i can but tempted as well ever no not really no not really no Tell us about your new book. It's uh, languages, isn't it? Yes. Um, so since uh, I was collecting material for Remnant since 2013, I was also doing a lot of side research on generational narratives of partition. So, for instance, if I, if I was sitting with an old man or woman, and their grandchild was sitting with them in on our conversation, I would always ask them what their connection was to partition. and whether or not they had a connection whether or not they cared and over years this vault of interviews also grew and um, it's this new book that is supposed to come out next year is a collection of interviews conversations musings on music art um with subsequent generations of partition survivors knowing little or a lot about partition trying to understand whether they actually care about it or not like is partition a word that we should you know utter and elaborate and go into these long detailed conversations about because i think i found myself saying many times that partition is not over partition still feels like it's happening but i didn't have any actual evidence sure. so this is an exploration into that into that know. just there's also this uh, thing that i said earlier as well that uh, in this virtual world you've you've remained steadfastly analog in uh, uh, in the I subject try. of your work uh, but there's also um, uh, uh, the whole uh, uh, project dastan that i think uh, uh is also going on about uh, virtual reality creating yes yes and uh, i i am just really lucky to be on their advisory board that's yeah. all but project dastan is incredible because it uses vr technology and 360 degree mapping and photographs to actually take people partition survivors back to their homes wow. 
even though they can't physically cross the border and it's an incredible project i'm really happy for them absolutely and uh, uh, there's um, uh, there's also this thing about uh, you know social media tends to uh, glamorize a few things and uh, and is that the... right <laughs> do tell what does that mean <laughs> there's yeah there's the there's the allure of being a writer and uh, and right you, you know what, what tends to happen is that the seduction of the genre uh, tends to um, overshadow the the true hard work that's required uh, you know behind uh, the 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 blood sweat and tears uh, tend to not be shown behind mm. the uh, the whole marketing gig that that tends to happen in social mm. media uh, if somebody were to uh, uh, be interested in uh, mm. telling the whole oral history of somewhere uh, mm. what would your uh, uh, advice be uh, to that person about how to start what was who was your first uh, interview do you uh, i'm sure you remember what was the first interview that you did for the for the book it was my mother's uncle okay in uh, my mother's ancestral house in north delhi and of course i remember it he was talking about a ghada and a guz that his family had carried from lahore to amritsar uh and it was just so mundane it was so everyday i was almost embarrassed that i hadn't seen these objects or paid attention to these objects uh but uh, to your other question what would be the piece of mm. advice um if anyone were to start it would probably be to listen um i think um that we don't listen enough and we are always in our heads uh building constructing our own answers in a way we don't even listen to the other person what they are saying particularly with the generation that has survived partition they are in the twilight of their lives and we were talking earlier about loneliness that is there is palpable loneliness in that generation because you know we have moved on we our lives are fast uh, but their lives are are slow they are analog they are intimate they care about conversation they care about these they care about just people sitting with them and spending time and i felt that with a lot of people i felt like they were appreciative of you know that i had come from somewhere else i had come i devoted 3 4 5 6 hours to them only you know particularly when i went to pakistan people couldn't believe that i had come from delhi to see them or when i would go to bengal or when i would go to the south they were excited because i it was devoted time to whatever they wanted to talk about and i think that i learned to listen uh it sounds like a really like weird thing to say it like that sure. uh but it's no. it's a very no. important virtue i i, I completely listening and slowing down i think two things uh, yeah. that we certainly need to relearn yes and uh, i just think that this is the perfect way to end this podcast to <laughs> listen <laughs> it'll be very nice yes. uh so yeah if if you do listen please uh, remember to like subscribe uh, comment that's important as well the teamwork arts podcast ladies and gentlemen is what you were listening to the absolutely wonderful um, anchal malhotra oral historian if you haven't read the book uh, remnants of a separation please please read it it's uh, the uh, it's a it's a phenomenal it's it's a phenomenal journey through uh, through emotion uh, anjal it's as usual it's just been such an educative uh, more than anything else actually it's been such an educative uh, conversation and uh, the art of conversation seems to be waning but you seem to be pretty good at it so i was so. just going to say so are you <laughs> like i i don't think i uh, talk as much uh, ever ever i'm always listening 
बट थैंक यू फॉर टॉकिंग सो मच एंड फॉर गिविंग अस थिंग्स टू थिंक अबाउट आई थिंक फूड फॉर थॉट इज समथिंग दैट वी कैन सर्टनली डू अ लॉट ऑफ विथ राइट नाउ सो थैंक यू फॉर दैट एंड या रिमेंबर रेमेंस ऑफ सेपरेशन दैट्स नेम द बुक अ टीम वर्क आर्ट्स पॉडकास्ट दैट इज वॉट दिस इज वॉट्स कमिंग अप नेक्स्ट वेल यू जस्ट हैव टू वेट फॉर दैट वोट यू थैंक यू फॉर लिसनिंग